welcome to the Alabaster Jar, a weekly conversation where we take on current issues impacting women at the intersection of faith, theology, and ministry. We are pleased to offer Alabaster Jar as a podcast of Northern Seminary. This week, our host, Dr. Lynn Coick, is joined by Dr. Kristen Page. Kristen received her PhD from Purdue University. She is Ruth Kraft Strawshine Distinguished Chair and Professor of Biology at Wheaton College. Her work has appeared in scholarly journals, including the Journal of Wildlife Management, Journal of Parasitology, Journal of Wildlife Diseases, and Emerging Infectious Diseases. She is the author of Wonders of Creation, Learning Stewardship from Narnia and Middle-Earth from InterVarsity Press. Hi, Kristen. Thanks so much for coming on the Alabaster Jar. Hi, Lynn. It's great to be with you. Well, thanks. We go back uh, over two decades, I have to say, right? We were colleagues. We started out at Wheaton College together. I believe we started the same year. Yes, so we've known each other a long time. Yes, and I, and I think we bonded over at least one experience I remember is that you were collecting uh, raccoon poop from my uh, backyard. Uh, I think, yeah, this becomes pertinent later on in the show, but I just thought we'd give a little teaser out there, right? Yes, I did visit your backyard and I did collect raccoon poop for my research, I should <laughs> for say. For your research, right, right. Not, yeah, let's just be clear about that. But now people are like, wow, what's going on? You know, we got to, <laughs> and how how is Lynn going to weave in a discussion about the great outdoors and the Bible and Narnia and raccoon poop? I don't know. I It's a pretty big task, but, you know. We'll, You're up for it. I'm up for it. <laughs> Oh, but uh, I know you have um, shared with me your love of the outdoors, going camping, hiking, um, just just being out. And I know you're an excellent photographer that that loves to take photos of animals and uh, plants, trees, that sort of thing. Um, have you always loved this, or is this something that grew on you as you studied biology? Because that's your area, right? Biology and ecology. Right. I'm an ecologist, but God made me this way. I have always loved being outdoors. Um, I had a grandma who would spend a lot of time in the garden with me and teaching me the birds and all the different plants. And my mom is a birder and also um, spent a lot of times outdoors. But the hiking and camping came after. Um, I didn't really begin that much until college, and I got to take a very fun course when I was a freshman where we traveled all over the United States and a little bit into Canada, um, and we camped every night, and we hiked the Grand Canyon, and we hiked in Glacier, and we, um, and that was the first time I'd ever been camping, and um, I haven't looked back. It's, it's just who I am. I love to be outdoors. Yeah, I... I share that with you, um, little story. When I um, met my husband, uh, he was in college at the time, and I remember learning about, he played the piano, and he took lessons for like 10 years. He's an excellent pianist. And I think we were looking at a cartoon, you know, like a mouse practic practicing the piano or something like that. And I, and I said to him, um, well, but did you practice when it was nice outside? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I would just stay. <laughs> and I thought I can't imagine like I could imagine sitting inside if it was pouring rain outside. You know, you have to find something to do. But 
it's nice outside and you still <laughs> stayed in, like you chose that. So I resonate with you that uh, I love being outside, love being outside. Well, you I also recently- love being outside when it's raining. So I, um, I just have to say, I don't mind the weather either. So practicing the piano was not my forte because I wanted to be outside. Yeah. <laughs> well, and I was like for three years in uh, book one of piano. Finally, it's just like everybody admitted what I had known for a long time, which was that I had zero talent that way. So got to play outside a little bit more. Yeah. Well, you you recently wrote a book called The Wonders of Creation, Learning Stewardship from Narnia and Middle Earth. Uh, this is a fabulous little book, and it comes from a project you did, the Hansen Lectures, which are part of uh, the offerings at the Wade Center, which is part of Wheaton College. Um, and the Wade Center has material about uh, Dorothy Sayers and C.S. Lewis and Tolkien. And the Hansen Lectures then sponsor um, some reflection um, on those authors from scholars that, you know, all all across the disciplines. And so you looked at C.S. Lewis and Tolkien's work through the lens of ecology, and you looked at how these men created literary landscapes. I love the Narnia stories and the Lord of the Rings trilogy. I mean, the movies are just breathtaking. You talk about how this literature might teach us to see actual creation in new and, and probably better ways. What, what do you mean by that? Well, I know that I might be unique in my love to be outdoors. I mean, I, I just love to be outdoors, but I also have many friends that would choose to be indoors and read. I do also really love to read. Um, so when I was asked about this project, I thought, well, I bet I could describe the landscapes um, created by these authors in such a way that people would start to understand what it is that I love about actual landscapes. And so I started to read Lewis and Tolkien in a new way and and really just think about um, the landscapes that they were creating as actual landscapes and try to offer Um, an ecologist's view of what do I see when I read these landscapes, hoping that for people who really don't like to be in creation, that they might start to discover um, something beautiful about creation just through fictional landscapes. I'm always looking for a way to encourage people to care for creation. And I thought this might be just a new way of thinking about that. Yeah. Well, I, you make some powerful arguments. Um, when I uh, think of the Lord of the Rings uh, trilogy, one of the scenes that really haunts me is when all the trees are being destroyed. They're they're being uh, sent into that deep pit that is like an inferno, and it essentially is producing power for the um, evil wizard um, Saruman. It's a horrible picture of the environment being destroyed, and you make a a fascinating point in the book that often evangelical Christians are resistant to learning about creation care. And I found that um, it it sounded um, 
odd, you know, like, well, that shouldn't be the case. So I'm, so why, why do you think it is the case that often evangelical Christians who typically love Tolkien, they love Lewis, why might they um, not embrace creation care? Well, I think there are a lot of reasons that anyone would push back against creation care. So I want to be careful not to try to um, stereotype all evangelicals, because I think many evangelicals have lots of different reasons for pushing back. But maybe one thing that we would all share is just the idea that we're created is hard for us, that we're creatures, that we're part of creation is kind of hard for us to maybe accept because we're created as special creation. We tend to think that that means that we're separate from the rest of creation. And if you don't understand your creatureliness um, and what that means for your life of faith, what it means for the way you respond to the rest of creation, then you wouldn't really be motivated for creation care, I don't think. There are a lot of other reasons that we could try to unpack, but I think that they might all come down to just this resistance to accept that we are created But this time of year is a great time to remember our creatureliness as we await the incarnate God who came and lived as a physical created or physically like we we live in in, on earth. So um, and he interacted with creation in ways that we get to interact with creation. And I think that that's a really um, to me, it makes it a privilege um, to be a steward of creation because I'm taking care of the place where where God dwelt. Yeah, so the so being creatures and and we're called you you talk about the creation story in Genesis how we're to be stewards of creation. We're made in God's image, but we are also creatures and in in trying to illustrate this, you draw from the magician's nephew from Lewis's work uh, as as part of the Narnian tale. And one of the lead characters, Diggory, is a young boy whose mom is really sick, sick to the point that she will likely die. And in the story, Diggory finds um, this world and, and finds a, is, is it a fruit or a leaf? It's something, right? That it's an apple that, that, he believes will heal his mom. And the temptation is to take that back to his mom while Aslan has said he's got to plant it. But you bring this up um, as a scene that helps us understand what it really means for us to be stewards of creation rather than maybe takers of creation. Can Can you fill that out a little bit? Right. So Diggory has a choice to live as an individual and meet his own personal needs using the resources that um, Aslan essentially has provided or um, pointed him to, or he can live as a member of a community and put the needs of everyone in his community first, even though it's not really his community in, in the story, but he's been asked it's really kind of his, um, 
Aslan sends him to do this to teach him an, an important lesson, but he still has the choice to make. He doesn't have to. And Jadis is tempting him. You should just take the apple back. You can you can leave anytime you want and take the apple and, and heal your mom. And it's a very strong temptation because he's just seen Jadis take one of the apples and um, gain a lot of power from it. So he goes back to Aslan, probably making the decision at the last minute. I don't know, want to read too much into Lewis's intentions, but if it was me, I probably wouldn't know what I was going to do until I did it. And so I read Diggory that way as well. And Diggory decides to give the apple to Aslan and plant it and it becomes the tree of protection in Narnia. And then I don't want to spoil the story for those of you who haven't read it, but um, his decision to protect Narnia ultimately is rewarded um, because he is able to help his mom. And um, the I love the part of the story where he, he plants the apple that he was given to take to his mom. He plants the core and that becomes the tree that the wardrobe is made from. And so it's just a beautiful story showing that when we make decisions, when we love our neighbor, um, we are loving ourselves in a way, but it's hard to love your your neighbor before you love yourself. Um, and I think that that's a choice that we get to make every day. And it's hard because our intent, at least in our culture, um, we tend to think of ourselves first. We're very individualistic. And we think, well, I, what I'm doing isn't going to harm anything. I'm not really. But it's maybe more the, the intent, our hearts, to help others first to make the choice for the community rather than ourselves, That's just a hard thing to do in our culture. And I think that we just need to be reminded of it. Lewis um, also tells the story of Eustace and um, the Don Treader. And, you know, Eustace is a horrible boy, but he has this experience that helps him realize how selfish he's been. And I love that Lewis says, well, I'd like to say that he was cured but really the cure had begun and he relapsed. And that's the same for us. We realize, I realize daily that I'm thinking of myself first and I, I relapse, but because I try to posture myself towards community, then the cure maybe has begun. Oh, that's good. Yeah, that is good. And, and you make the point as well in the book that sometimes it's hard to, to even know one's being selfish because the ramifications of my choice aren't felt by me or my neighbors. We lived in Kenya for um, many years, uh, three years. And during that time, um, I had a chance uh, to visit many um, local homes that were, uh, everyone was cooking by uh, a wood fire, you know, um, and deforestation was a real problem. There had also been 20 or 30 years earlier, much deforestation done by the ruling um, party at the time. Um, but that deforestation, that wood probably is now in homes that aren't in Kenya at all, but are um, gracing the homes of rich people elsewhere. And you talk about how in Lewis, uh, um, we'll stay with Lewis here in the Narnia Tales, these, these stories help us cultivate a stronger land ethic. They help us to think about the wider uh, 
community, um, even around the globe. Um, yeah, talk a little bit more about how you see the interaction of the fictional stories and then the real situation that so much of us in the United States and Western cultures face. I think the fictional stories give us an avenue to see, kind of see ourselves and how we're acting in, in the world. Um, and I come to this from a, a unique position. I'm a disease ecologist, so I'm going to help you out with our comment at the beginning. Um, I study diseases and how they emerge as a result of the things that we do to the land. And deforestation is one of the things that really facilitates disease emergence. Um, you can name a disease. It's probably linked somewhere to deforestation or landscape transformation. One of the most um, impactful studies that I've read um, demonstrated that two years following a deforestation event, you could e expect an Ebola outbreak. And that's what happened with the, you know, the larger Ebola outbreaks. They really followed deforestation. So for me, <clears throat> it's overwhelming when I teach my students, like we're doing this to the land, we're making our neighbors sick. Um, and so to start there is, is fairly off-putting to people. Um, and nobody wants anyone to suffer, but to link, well, my consumption is making other people across the world sick. That's a hard sell because we don't want to believe it. And um, our privilege gives us all kinds of permissions to hide from that. Um, but the stories show us people just like us or similar to us that are interacting with landscapes in ways that totally transform their lives, right? So King Tyrion, when the wood nymph comes to him and, and is crying for him to help, and he's like sitting under a tree and all happy and relaxing, and then he kind of is slow to react. And when he finally reacts, it's too late. All the old trees are gone, right? That's us. We sit back in our comfortable places and spaces and consume the things that we don't think have an impact. And then by the time we hear the call and react, sometimes it's too late. I'm not saying it's too late to react, um, but I'm saying that we could, we could push things a little bit too late and we really need to, to, um, to lead the charge, to, to react, to, to start to change the ways that we consume. You know, what are two or three things that, that you think, we can enact even now? Because I, I confess to you, as I hear this, I'm like, yes, I want to do something. Okay, what? What do I do? <laughs> yeah. Right. Well, so these stories help me develop a land ethic because they write my view. Tolkien talks a lot about recovery. And when he talks about recovery, he's not talking about like escaping. He's talking about rewriting our view. And so we can use these stories to rewrite our view. And so some of the things that I do... Um, are really just about my attitudes, right? So maybe you've heard a podcast or read something that says, well, everybody says we should recycle. And we all know that it's not really doing anything. But is, is it really the recycling that's, the, that's important or our hearts? If we recycle because we know it's the right thing to do and we can't control what happens after we've done what we can do, then that's the right, our, that's our having our hearts in the right place. Some of the things that I do, I mean, I try to recycle. I try to do all of those things that um, may or may not have a big impact on the world, but they definitely have an impact on my heart, which makes me think about the ways that I communicate about policies 
or the ways that I want to ask questions of our local leaders um, and have them think about the decisions that they make. And then just maybe some, this might sound silly or, or something that a Wheaton professor would say, but it changes the way that I pray. And I think that when I'm praying in a way, um, like for example, when I go to Kenya or Tanzania, I'm always struck by the burden of the women and how hard they work and how far they carry the water and how far they have to walk to find the wood. And so when I'm walking, I'm praying for women. When I'm showering in a hot shower, thinking how lovely it is I can turn a knob and have hot water immediately without a smoky house, I pray for women and girls who have to walk for water. And then because of that, I use less and I have an impact on the oh, world. That's, no, I, I am, our listeners can't hear, but I'm shaking my head um, the whole time as, as you are talking. When we moved back, I think it was for six months, every time I stepped in the shower, I was really thankful that it was clean, warm water because that was, and we had a nice home, uh, relatively speaking, but water and electricity were not reliable um, and all of that. But I, I have a funny story to tell you too about the women. After we went back several years after we had lived there and my daughter and I were walking along a railroad track, a deserted railroad track, and we came across a woman and her granddaughter and the older woman was carrying wood on her back, which was a, a very traditional thing that the women did. And I'm thinking, okay, she's the oldest of the four and she's got this load on her. That's just not fair. I should be carrying it at least for part of the way. I mean, you know, it just seems impolite that um, what's happening. So um, the daughter knew English very well. And I said, could I, could I help? you know, your grandma, I can carry some of this. So they put it on my back and I just about fell over. <laughs> it was so heavy. And I thought, you know, I'm not completely out of shape, but oh my word. So we're walking along and we come to a very narrow bridge that has like a curb on a, a railroad track. And I was not steady with this huge load. And I thought I could fall eight feet down, like just... <laughs> So I, I stopped. I said, I don't think I can walk across this. And the grandma took the <laughs> took the wood back on with a very nice smile, but all sort of also sort of a roll her eyes. Yep, uh, you know, these <laughs> these Americans or whatever, I don't know what she was thinking. I'm sure they had a good laugh around the uh, uh around mealtime and it maybe still uh to this day, I don't know. But my point is that that was really heavy work. It's very hard work. And uh, yeah, so that sticks in, in my mind. And it is good to pray for our sisters around the world who, to create hot water, have to go into the forest um, once or twice a week and pull back um, a, heavy, a heavy load. Yeah. You have been in those places with your camera and you have taken amazing photographs, including some that are in the book, a lioness, a gorilla with her baby and trees 
lots of trees, as you point out throughout the book, how much Tolkien also liked trees. How does art, because we've talked about literary landscape, how does art, especially your photography, help? how does that help us engage with creation? Well, for me, having my camera gives me maybe an excuse to slow down. I like to slow down and stop and look at things and explore. And my camera lets me um, get close and think about things from a new perspective. I try to teach my science students that scientists really, to be a great scientist, you need to be creative. And somehow, somewhere along the way in our education, um, that gets stripped away. You know, you have to write boring papers. You have to be concise. You have to um, have a hypothesis that gets tested in a very rigid way. But to get to the hypothesis, don't you have to be creative? And so um, I try to bring art and creativity into my classroom. And um, in fact, um, I just finished teaching ecology and their very last assignment was to develop an artistic, some type of art. It could be visual art. It could be um, music. It could be poetry or, or literary art. Um, they had to develop their eco-theology using art. And it was really beautiful, the types of things that they did. It made them more vulnerable and made them really have to consider, why do I, um, what is my eco-theology? Why should I, how do I um, combine my ideas about my faith with my stewardship? Should I steward? I'm happy to say they all did present eco-theologies that pointed them towards stewardship. Um but they just had such creative ways of doing that. And many of them shared that it helped them kind of knock down these walls um, and help them think a little bit more about how their faith informs their science. So I think they're all very um, entwined. But the camera gives me maybe an excuse because then I can stop and get in the on the ground and people don't think it's so weird if you're holding a camera. But I would do it if I didn't have my camera too. No, that's and that's a good word. I mean, because... W- I know I just always feel like I've got to rush to the next thing. And being out in nature, uh, if we're careful about it, can really slow us down in in a proper way. You know, we've you were out there in uh, East Africa getting these photos. You also talked about um, whale watching, I think, right? That you are out. Oh, and I, I've done that once. And... I think it was one of the most amazing experiences. One of the one of the whales went under the boat, came up on the other side, and I'll let you tell your whale story. Uh, and I realized when they came up on the other side that I had been holding my breath. <laughs> also, just like the whale thing, and okay, swim, swim to the other side. Don't come up <laughs> right underneath us. But they're so gorgeous so big, so graceful. Why do these encounters, tell us your story of the whale encounter, but then why do they ex- uh, just affect us so deeply? Well, I think that that's wonder you're experiencing, right? I think that God has created us to have this response to his creation. I mean, he thinks it's beautiful too. Um, so my whale story, I was taking a course in um, Ecuador and we were in Galapagos for 15 days. And um, one one day the captain called and said, there's a whale close by, come and look. And I think it, there were only a couple of us that took advantage and went up 
on deck and we saw this humpback whale approaching the boat and and then it just kind of turned on its side and I looked right into its eye and it was, you could see an intelligence. I mean, I just, there was a connection. It was, um, I don't know how to explain it, but it did change me. Um, and I think that seeking wonder is a proper response and it's really, really important to develop um, a land ethic or a need or a desire to steward creation. And we're given so many opportunities to wonder, but it, just like my science students losing their creativity, adults in general lose their ability to wonder. So if we don't practice it, if it's not a discipline um, or something that we seek, um, after we have young children, once they have gotten too old maybe to wonder, um, then we also forget so I think we have a period in our life from childhood until we're parents where we don't wonder as much. And then we get to re-experience wonder with young children, and then maybe it falls off again. Um, but I think that God wants us to wonder at all that he's made through our whole lives. And um, so, yeah, the whale was amazing. I've had, I've been blessed with so many wonderful experiences that I feel like I am not a great um, person to try to convince you to wonder because I've had all these amazing experiences, but you can wonder just from your home. Um, I wonder every day at this bird that comes and listens to my daughter practice the cello. It comes and it lands and it sits there and it looks through the window and it turns its head while she plays. And I can tell what kinds of pieces that it enjoys more than other pieces. It'll fly away when she's playing something that's a bit dissonant. Um, she It likes very low pitches. And so I, I just am in wonder at the ways if we take time to notice um, creation, we can participate as creatures in creation. So... Oh, that is... That's beautiful. And even now, the three of us... Uh, Serene and Kristen and I all live in the Chicagoland area. And right now, as we're doing this podcast, it's snowing big snowflakes, which is wonderful. And as a kid, I do remember just wanting to be out there, sticking my tongue out so the snowflakes could fall on it. And I have to say, I will lose my wonder uh, when it's snowing like this uh, in March. <laughs> <laughs> so sometimes it's hard to to keep the wonder because you're sick of shoveling. But there is also something amazingly beautiful, even about the uh, the atmosphere, the weather that creates this beauty that then you um, you can be out there and enjoy nature in all of its difference. Yes. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Kristen. I hope people are able to get the wonders of creation, le learning stewardship from Narnia and Middle Earth. It's such a fun read. And and you just, you bring us into creation and help us understand our role in creation care. Just so, it, it's inspiring. So thank you so much for, for doing that. And also for coming on the Alabaster Jar. Thanks so much. Well, thank you so much for having me. It was been a pleasure. If you enjoyed this conversation with Dr. Kristen Page, be sure to check out today's episode description for links to learn more and purchase her book, Wonders of Creation, Learning Stewardship from Narnia and Middle Earth. 
We release new episodes weekly, so please subscribe, share, and join us back here next week for another episode of the Alabaster Jar podcast.